0: Good morning again. So, I want to give you some description of how to use that practice of renunciation to begin to um, or go a little bit deeper into working with underlying patterns, habits, things you'd like to let go of. And I thought we'd use the example of um, using noble silence since we're all, well, we're not, obviously, using noble silence, but since all of you are. So... Ordinary human behavior is that we want to draw the things close to us or do the things that help us feel better. It's understandable. More comfortable or happier, something pleasant. And we want to push away, get rid of, block out, avoid as much as possible the things that bring us pain or discomfort. That's just normal. All living beings are like this. Trouble is that behavior doesn't really satisfy us or bring us long-term happiness, and it certainly doesn't bring long-lasting peace of mind. Um, So what we learn as human beings with human consciousness is that we actually can let go of things that either eventually bring suffering or carry suffering with them even if they feel good in the moment. And that's, I mean we're gonna talk in the next couple days about you know what that includes, but for the moment Let's just take the example of noble silence. So, clearly, this is an unusual kind of practice in normal life. You know, we have other criteria for when to say what we say. And in this case, what we're agreeing to and what we're Practicing is to speak only when it's necessary, important. So, what that means is when we have the thought that we want to say something, there's that wedge of awareness. I can't remember if I said that with the whole group or just in a discussion period, but you know, you're slipping the thin edge of a wedge in there to stop, just don't automatically go ahead. You pause and you notice what is it that I want to say and why do I want to say it? Is this necessary? So something like you see a tick on somebody's clothes, you want to let them know. Maybe it's on the back of their neck, you know, and maybe you want to offer to help take it away, something like that, right? Very common experience this time of year in this kind of environment. Or maybe the building's on fire. Or if you're working in the kitchen, like um, our good friend here who sits in the front, they're going to have to talk some in there to know who's doing what and how things are going. Preferably keeping that, too, at a minimum. Why? Because it helps the mind become still and stay still. But the other reason is we can really observe our own patterns. Like, why do I want to say this? What is the feeling I'm probably going to have by saying this is there going to be a little bit of an ego boost is there going to be some kind of relief by getting that out off my chest you know what is it that want that pushes me to want to talk and that really that can that can really help us understand because a lot of times you know we say things and there's some kind of little touch of gratification there. Something I know that I'm gonna share or something I've felt. Maybe we're gonna say something because we think it's gonna help the other person or comfort them. And there's something good that comes out of that, but still in this context, knowing what it is that is pushing me to do that is really useful. And in this context, okay, the building's not on fire. Maybe I don't have to give this piece of advice or words of comfort or whatever I can hold back and feel the feeling of this restrained urge. So, of course, some of our urges are way more intense than this. Sexual desire can just be such a hot experience or anger, right? If we have trouble restraining ourselves in saying things, we're probably going to have trouble when anger arises or strong lust, something like that. So this is a really helpful practice and we stay present with that feeling. Now maybe that's Maybe this doesn't apply so much to you. Maybe for you, you have to kind of push yourself to say things. You wanna stay quiet, you wanna stay hidden. This is also a good pattern to observe and, and to, to re- re- realize there's nothing really wrong with what you're doing. It's that we wanna learn how to be restrained, how to practice renunciation. So that for the things that we actually can identify in our own behaviors that really do not lead to satisfaction, happiness for ourselves and others, we can really identify, not only is there dukkha inherent in this, but when I do it, I create more dukkha. Those can be more challenging and we wanna develop this practice of renunciation. It's a conscious, clear choice. And we bring a conscious awareness to the feeling that we have when we wanna do it, or have it, or be it. (coughs) And when we have that clarity, this is what I mean by starting to see the gratification in something what is it that I want to experience here or what is it that I think I'm going to get out of this what is it that I think I'm going to give to someone else in this and you know, really look what, and what if, I, if I tell someone else something hopefully for their own good what is that still how does that come back to me what is that feeling and that's the gratification side And what's the danger? We don't have self-control. We don't have self-awareness. We don't understand the downside. There's always a downside. Everything has the, the upside and the downside. When things look really dark, look for the upside. What's the benefit? What's the positive result? So I was teaching this recently and someone said, but aren't there some things that are just all negative? Like, how do you find what's positive in genocide? I said, well, there are lots of stories of courage, of, you know, like kindness, you know, and you can say, "Well, it doesn't balance. this is not a world in in balance. This is like constant in our in our experience. There's the dark and the light everywhere in this human realm so of course, we want to discourage the dark and increase the light, but first we well, maybe not first, but at the same time, we need to be able to do that in ourselves, even those habits that seem like, well, they're not that bad. (laughs) But they're still not bringing happiness, they're bringing suffering at some level. So when we stop ourselves and we kind of slip that wedge in a little bit further between The you might say the trigger of either I want to say something, or someone just said something to me that I want to come back on, maybe with a little heat on it, or maybe not. But that wedge of awareness gets goes in a little bit deeper, and we come back to how it feels, and we come back to it the way it presents itself in the body, how it feels, where it's at in my body. And so when practicing with this, sometimes we need to use an example that's got a little more intensity so that we can really get the sense of how this works. Like maybe something that happened last week or last month or 20 years ago, it doesn't matter. It's like you think about that incident and you can feel the feeling. Then the key is, you set the incident aside. What happened isn't really so important. I know this may sound strange, especially if it's something like major horrific, but we don't make the progress through going over what happened in the past. We make the progress by working with the feeling that's created from it. We don't have to go back and relive that. We can just work with that feeling inside. We can see, like, ask questions about it, you know, like, how big is it? How does it feel? What's its texture? What color does it have if it had a color? I know this sounds maybe a little strange, but the reality is this is mindfulness. This is practicing having an awareness of what's actually going on inside. And, of course, this isn't a physical feeling. It's a mental feeling. And it can appear anywhere in your body. Usually it's kind of between your head and your legs, your you know, something like that. And you feel it. Maybe there's a tightness in the belly or there's a tightness in your throat or heaviness in your chest or whatever it is. But you stay present with that feeling. And you can ask yourself questions about it. You can ask yourself, when did I first feel, when when do I remember first feeling this feeling in my life? It's one, one question. Besides, what are its qualities? What are its characteristics? When you stay present with it, you can watch it change. It changes, it moves, it Maybe it becomes more dispersed. But you're there with it. And it's really helpful to know that we can just set aside the story. We spend most of our time usually on the story. And we're not making any progress there. Once we are able to stay present with that felt sense in our body on you might say kind of all the way through with christian contemplation or theistic religious contemplation maybe it's prayer that you think of and that you can pray all the way through something praying all the way through means on the other side you feel this lightness it's a release And it's the same with this practice. You can take it all the way through and feel the relief. Now you might also have some physical feelings during this time. You could have a strong emotional feeling that's kind of like caught in your stomach and you could also feel hunger. And you could even like that that wise, aware part of the mind can say, you know, I think this will go better if I have a little something to eat. And you can still be present with that emotional feeling through the whole thing. And you can bring kindness to that. So this wise, kind of grown-up part of your mind is observing, taking care of you. And at the same time, you're able to stay present with this... Re- reaction to the world, to life, to whatever that trigger was. When we when we take it all the way through, you might say there's relief. And the situation in our life, if it's a current situation like you're dealing with a health issue or something that's happening to a loved one or whatever it is, when we When we take it all the way through, we're at peace. And nothing has changed in the world. But our relationship to it has changed completely. And then our ability to respond is so different, so much more balanced, wise, effective, beautiful, It has that mix of kindness, compassion, empathy. And we've left behind. You know what we've left behind? The ego, the sense of self, the me and mine. What's this going to mean to me? That is lingering underneath so much of what's going on with us. So much of, that's what's really behind the wanting to pull things towards us and push things away. How it's gonna affect me. So, you know, what are we being asked to do here? It's rising above our normal kind of animal instincts. It's rising above our kind of gross human behavior. But isn't it amazing that it's possible? For human beings. And it's not even something that's abnormal. It's like we also have this instinct. So I just want to encourage you know, take this time, these next couple of days, to really work with what's inside, bring it up. Like I said, let go of the story. That one phrase, if you're gonna write about it, write down one phrase about what it's about, what happened. And then the rest is all about how that works inside of you. Somebody asked a question uh, during one of the discussion groups about what's the difference between renunciation and relinquishment. And uh in, is in her usual form, gave a very succinct answer to that. Renunciation is what happens when you still want it. And relinquishment happens when you've already given it up. You, let, you don't want it anymore. She even said it more concisely than that. But I always have to eva- elaborate on every, <laughs> everything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so we, we work with that like while we still want it. Because we start to see that, okay, sometimes it's okay to have it. But it really doesn't satisfy if I think this is going to give me something it can't give me. You know, an easy example is eating. You know, you want the ice cream. It's maybe got a bunch of associations with it that we like or whatever. It's okay, but it's not really lasting happiness, right? And it doesn't have to be. But the point is we're, we're aware, like aware of why we do what we do and what we think we're gonna get out of it and why we're disappointed sometimes when we're disappointed and, you know, what is it that I want to develop over the long term to be less self-centered, more generous? more kind, more truthful, drop the pretense that I'm using to protect myself. What is that self I'm trying to protect? Can I just be, develop those good qualities, notice them in myself, build them, be happy with the state of things in this body and mind. You can also work with something you anticipate coming, if that's helpful, something you're worried about, something you're afraid might happen. You think about it and then feel it. What if that thing that I am really afraid of, the worst, what if that happened, how would that feel? How do I imagine that would feel, being with that? Breathing, breathing into it. Sometimes we feel like we've gotten through something and then it comes back again and we just need to be patient. The Buddha said patient endurance was the highest austerity. We need to really... If it comes again, we deal with it again. It's okay. It's not going to continue to have the same power in your life that it has now if you do this practice, if you do this work. And this really is the first three noble truths. This is what the Buddha's whole teaching is based on, the four noble truths, the first one you're recognizing when dukkha is there. Dukkha covers the whole range from this doesn't feel quite right to catastrophe, full-blown suffering. In the human realm, Almost there's almost no exception to the fact that it doesn't feel quite right. <laughs> it's, just, it's just the nature of it. Or it's not really satisfying. Not really as satisfying as we thought it should be. So that first noble truth, the, the Buddha said he. there are four noble truths and each one, there's a task and a, and a result. So the task with... The noble truth of dukkha is to understand it. And the result is when you say, This dukkha is understood. I've understood this. I've understood why I get angry when this person says this thing to me. I've understood why. And with anger, there's a few layers, either fear or sadness, there's always something underneath it. A lot of times it's called the tip of the iceberg. You know, we understand it. The second noble truth is the cause of the dukkha. What's the cause? The underlying cause, it's always about clinging, it's always about attachment but that's too glib we can say that and it's like bypassing the real dealing with, grappling with the experience, we have to get clearer than that if we're going to actually let it go so you go down into it you said the task with this noble truth is to let it go you release, relinquish, let go of the cause. What's the cause? Maybe I'm trying to protect myself. I'm clinging to this concept of me, and I think I need to shore it up. Or I don't want people to really see who I really am. Something like, you know, whatever it is, Whatever it is, underneath, down at the core, when you, when you really stay present with that feeling and you go all the way to the bottom of it, notice what's there. For me, when I started this practice, I thought I had a lot of problems. And then, as I did it, it kept going back to the same place. Am I good enough? Sometimes it's, am I lovable? whatever it is down there, that fundamental misunderstanding of reality, first of all, that there is a solid core someone here and there is something flawed about it. And when we get all the way down to that, that core belief about ourselves that's mistaken And we can let that go and see what happens. There's real relief. So that's the third noble truth. There's the cessation of suffering. And the Buddha said, that needs to be realized. Then you go okay let's see did i do all three parts for all of them the second one you let go you release let go of that cause you abandon is one of the ways i say it. you abandon the cause and then the result you know you've abandoned it In the Buddhist teachings, there's always this you kind of it happens, you realize something, and then you solidify that realization by looking at it and going, Yes, this I've realized. So there's always that completion and clarity. So I've abandoned it, and I know it's abandoned. Then you experience the cessation of the suffering, and the task there is you realize it. You realize that it's gone. How many times have you been sick, and then you're well, and you don't really know when that happened? (laughs) This is very common, right? I had a headache, but now the headache's gone, and when did that happen? We don't, like, we're not paying attention to the ending of things a lot of times. Sometimes when people are are meditating on their breath, they, they kind of miss the end of the in-breath or the out-breath. They're already on to something else, right? So when the cessation of suffering occurs, we realize, we realize it. And that helps us understand better the process that got us there. And we know that we've realized it. And then the fourth the fourth noble truth is that path, right? The Noble Eightfold Path. So this is really developing our moral virtue, our right view and right intention. I'm taking this out of order, some of you would know. And our meditation. So this is very... Um, Powerful because it takes care of everything that we need to take care of to create the foundation so that we can go through noble truths one, two, and three over and over and over again. We've got the foundation. We've got the, the pieces in place to rely on. So the, fir- the, the moral virtue part is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So, you know, we talked about those um, components of right speech, of truthfulness, non-divisive speech, non-harsh or harmful speech, and speech that's not frivolous. And right action is not killing, not stealing, and not engaging in sexual misconduct. And then I think it's brilliant that the Buddha put in right livelihood because our livelihood takes so much of our energy, time, and attention. We're engaged in that a lot. And what makes it right? It has integrity. It doesn't harm. So the Buddha pointed out a few wrong livelihoods, which are things like trading in weapons. If you're making weapons and selling weapons, what's the result? If you're selling alcohol, what's the result? Well, these kinds of things. But there's also other things. right? And we want to be able to be happy to offer our livelihood as a gift into the world. And if we do everything as a gift, it takes away that pressure or that pride or that ego of, like, this is what I I have to give. This is what I do. It's a gift. And you don't have to be so stressed about it if it doesn't go, if the things you can't control don't go the way they they you want them to go which is a lot of times what's happening we drive ourselves crazy because we can't control things that we can't control and if we're giving a gift then we do what we can just like in the sutta the other night, you do what you can and then if you can't make it go the way you want it to go you say, okay forces are pretty strong I can't turn this now what can I do? You can tell the your boss that the project isn't gonna come in on time. <laughs> tell them as soon as possible. <laughs> Reset those expectations, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. And and so this right livelihood is worth really really looking at. And right intention is really keeping the mind on, instead of sensual desire, renunciation. Instead of thoughts of ill will, non-ill will, instead of, or intentions around this, intentions of cruelty, non-cruelty. And some people turn those around to the positive, which is fine kindness, compassion, but you can also just be ha- the absence of cruelty, the absence of ill will. And right view has many layers to it. And, and there, are, there are many pieces. So we're not going to go into too much detail right now, but the view that you have the agency, the control to choose what you're gonna say and what you're gonna do and how you're gonna think. And when you say things, you can make a choice, you can look at, is this gonna be harmful before you say it? When you say it, is this being harmful? Stop. (laughs) After you're finished, was that harmful? Make amends, determine not to do that again, if it was. And that's how it is with our actions too. And even what we put our energy into thinking, you can think about it before, during, after, and adjust. So that's part, that's one part of right view. We have that responsibility for ourselves. And of course, the other three pieces of the Noble Eightfold Path right effort. You know, putting in that effort to see what's wholesome and unwholesome and purify the mind. Bringing up the wholesome and keeping it there. Doing the things that keep the unwholesome from arising or when it does, how to to abandon that unwholesome. That unwholesome way of thinking. And then samadhi fundamental, key to being able to maintain peace and calm and to develop insight and mindfulness. Of course, they didn't give them to you in the order they come in, right view first, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right samadhi. It covers everything. Everything you need is in there everything we need to be able to really develop, really develop into someone you admire so much. Not with a kind of personal pride, but with a, yes, this is the way I want to be. This is what I respect. And that's a gift to everyone. I'm gonna leave it at that. And we're gonna uh, meet with Milton, Janie, Sophie, Sarah, and Micah in the classroom in a few minutes. So I wish you really wonderful, productive, happy practice today. And we'll be back in here at 2 o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.